Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 68 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 68, we are going to be talking mostly around a rather interesting and lengthy topic. Well, actually, there's lots of little sort of subtopics from this idea. We're going to be talking about the worst quizzing rule. So it's usually a good idea from time to be uh, time to time to be self-critical and self-reflective and kind of examine uh, where we're coming from and sort of the things that we've been doing. And so Scott and I have, along with several other folks who have a lengthy uh, quizzing experience, we've been discussing and debating different quizzing rules that exist in the rule book. And we want to, uh, Scott and I would like to go through and highlight some of our, what we consider, at least our personal opinions, the not necessarily the opinions of others, but in our personal opinion, what are the worst quizzing rules of the bunch and kind of highlight why we think those things and so forth. But before we get there, we're going to talk uh, very briefly about the meet that just concluded this last weekend, the internationals meet, uh, some highlights therein, which is a great meet. And we've got a handful of sort of follow-up questions uh, things that kind of shook out from the last couple weeks or so since the last podcast. And we want to we get to those things before we get to the worst quizzing rules. So our first topic is the International's highlights. So a couple of things or I, I, stuff coming out of it. We had uh, 18 teams representing most of the U.S. and Canadian districts, which was awesome. It was really great to, to well see via video and hear uh, everybody and hear the quizzers. And uh, we had six quiz rooms running concurrently, which means six quiz masters and so, uh, six answer judge scorekeepers. And, uh, you know, we had our statisticians and meet Zach, uh, Zachary Tinker, CQLT uh, chair was the meet director. And we ran internationals over the course of three days entirely virtually. It was the first time, uh, of course, that we've done any sort of international kind of competition at this level, uh, it, doing it virtually or online and so forth. So it was definitely very weird and interesting and we had all kinds of technical uh, issues <laughs> that popped up along the way uh, some of which uh, very difficult to predict and just sort of things that kind of happened and others that were a little bit easier to predict but uh, we were able to kind of roll with the punches fortunately several districts actually I think every district that participated had done at least some amount of inter-district practicing uh, via the virtual framework before we began the meet. And a few of the districts, uh, certainly, you know, P&W and uh, West Can and Metro and uh, CMD had a virtual inter-district quiz meet experience. Uh, P&W was probably the most experienced going into the internationals meet in terms of virtual quizzing because uh, we've done four uh, quiz meets prior to internationals that were virtual uh, for P&W. So we have a fair bit of experience there. Uh, but the meet was enormous amounts of fun, lots of fellowship time, lots of hanging out time, lots of uh, quizzing, uh, just generally great. Uh, in the final nine uh, finals quiz on Sunday afternoon, late afternoon for folks on the East Coast, we had uh, three teams, the PNW1, CCD1, and CCD2. 
and PNW1 took first place, so yay, that was cool. And then, uh, very interestingly, uh, PNW2 actually took first place in the Consolation Bracket Finals as well, just a little bit before the uh, top nine uh, finals quizzes uh, began. So that was uh, pretty awesome and pretty great to see PNW uh, represent our district really well. The two PNW teams and uh, quizzes and coaches represent the district really well. I'm, I'm very proud of what they did. They put a lot of time and effort into preparing and the strategy and thinking through things. And of course, they had a lot of experience with virtual as well, which certainly uh, uh, played a part uh, in their in a, uh, uh, their ultimate victories. But really, I want to say thank you to uh, the quizzers everywhere and the coaches everywhere who participated. I want to say thank you to the district coordinators who spurred your districts on to uh, to participate. I want to thank super thank you to the officials the quiz masters and the scorekeepers and the answer judges and uh, John running stats and actually Scott too. You uh, jumped in at one point to help with stats uh, or actually more than one time uh, to help with stats. And so I wanted to say thank you to all of those folks, uh, especially the quiz masters who, you know, I, quiz masters normally have a lot on their plate to deal with. They're, they're certainly heavily saturated at quiz meets, but when you're talking about something that's a virtual quiz meet, it's even more amounts of saturation. And of course, international level of quiz meet, it's even higher stress level plus this massive cognitive overload that takes place uh, when you're quiz mastering a virtual meet. There's just a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that a quiz master has to do. So I just wanted to say a super thank you to the quiz masters, all the officials, all the people who helped. I wanted to say uh, thank you to uh, Tim and Alan and Zach uh, who uh, were with me on the leadership team putting the meet together. I want to thank our speaker. We had uh, the Reverend Dr. Oh, and I forgot his name. Stump, Stumbo. How do you say his last name, Scott? John Stumbo. Stumbo, um, who led a fantastic uh, devotions on on Saturday. That was just a real treat and um, potentially something I don't think we could have have happened if uh, we weren't virtual. So it just worked out really great. So Scott, I mean, Scott, I know you were, uh, you had family over, so you weren't able to necessarily, uh, you know, watch everything in real time, but the quizzing nerd in you kind of took over and I noticed you were still spending a lot of time, uh, you know, in chats and, and watching and listening, but what were sort of your takeaways from uh, the spectator point, uh, point of view? Um, I don't have a ton to add because I don't think I watched a second of actual quizzing. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Even the finals. But even the finals. Yeah, I was I was disposed. Um, but it was it was fun to follow everything surrounding as it was happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we never have to do internationals again. We can go back to internationals, uh, which would be a really good thing. Hopefully virtual quizzing can can die and we will never have to do virtual quizzing again. Although, alas, I fear perhaps maybe the beginning of the upcoming Matthew season might have to be done virtually. Um, I know we've, we're start, we're still perfecting ways of doing that, and I think we can still make it even better than what, what we've done. Actually, I know we can make it better than what we've done even to date, but I really wish we could never do virtual again. I would very much like to go, get back to the in-person meets. All right, well, uh, so let's kind of run through some of the housekeeping stuff. Scott, you've got some uh, questions and comments and uh, observations in the queue here. Why don't you uh, kick it off? Yeah, let me bring up the question. We're going to be in Hebrews 10.25 to start. 
The verse reads, "Not giving up the hab- not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing." And then it continues. And the interrogative that I ran across was the habit of doing what? Give and the answer is giving up meeting together. And so my question was, if the quizzer jumped on the habit of doing what and said not giving up meeting together, would you count them incorrect? Interesting. So the habit of doing what? Uh, giving up meeting together. Well, I'm not really a big fan of this question. Um, hmm. You know, I could, I could, I could even see maybe even tossing the question. I know that's not going to make you happy and it's probably not, it's probably not the right answer, but the whole idea of like in the habit of doing, giving up meeting together, not giving up meeting there. Yeah, if a quizzer said not giving up meeting together, I think, yeah, I guess they are incorrect because it is giving up meeting together. But gosh, I don't like this question. Sure. And now what about if a quizzer jumped and said, so they jumped on the how to doing what? And they jumped up and said, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. What would you rule in that case? Oh, see, we're going back to something we talked about in the last episode. Um, That's what made me think of this scenario. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is why I think we really do have to legitimately consider that there is a quoting stipulation. I mean, it's not in the rule book. I totally get. And that's the thing. Like, like in let, let's go back to your actual question. In your actual question, if some if a quizzer said that, I would I would really really have to count them correct. Like. I, I, it would be hard for me to consider that an incorrect answer when they're clearly, like, clearly, clearly, clearly quoting. But at the same time, the rule book doesn't give me that option. Yeah, but I think the in the first scenario where all they said was not giving up meeting together, I would look at the rule book and say, did they give me incorrect information? And I think they did. Yeah. Um, but in the second scenario, when they quoted those two verses, um, I would not consider them to have given me incorrect information. So it's almost like the additional information they gave contextualized that small phrase. Yeah. Yeah, that's which again, true. Which again is not saying like, oh, because you were quoting, you can't be wrong for giving incorrect information. It's just that now I'm considering a much larger amount of information that they've given me. And that is what leads me to saying, oh, I don't think you gave me something incorrect. Whereas before, you really have to evaluate what they gave you in a complete vacuum because they didn't give anything else outside of the vacuum. Right. So here's the thing. How would you rule? I, I think you're right. Um, I would like the rule book to be a little bit more clear on this, but but I, I, but I think you are right. So here's the scenario. What happens if uh, you ask the question, you get the full question out, uh, although I don't think that really matters, uh, and I answer not giving up meeting together, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not meeting, uh, not giving up meeting together as some are in, are in the habit of doing. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm-hmm. And I don't pause. Like I literally just do exactly that. Not giving up meeting together, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I would probably lean towards giving you the benefit of the doubt in that scenario, but I don't know what I am leaning on in the rule book to do so. Yeah, I would want to lean that way as well, but I think we are both wrong. And the reason I think we are both wrong is because of our shared stance on quote questions. 
Uh, so for example, or quote and finish questions, right? So the idea is you are correct before you are incorrect. So if you move into, for those who haven't heard Scott and I talk about this before, if say I am quoting, uh, you know, Hebrews chapter two, verse four, and I quote it word perfectly correct, but I trail into verse five, I am, Scott and I both believe that the quizzer is correct before they are incorrect, right? Um, so likewise in 1025, theoretically, would I not be incorrect before I am correct? Yeah, but see, the thing is when the rule book talks about only the first answer of a quiz will be considered correct. And in last episode, we talked about how quoting and giving an answer are not phrases that are in the rule book or defined or anything like that. Right. Even though that's the case, um, I think we evaluate answers by a quizzer. I shouldn't say answers. I think we evaluate information given by the quizzer differently if they give a small piece versus a much larger piece, even if that larger piece isn't either word perfect or exactly um, front to back, as in this case that you've given me, where it's like some from the middle and then going back a little bit. Um, I think just in general, quiz masters are a little bit more lenient the greater amount of information that the quizzer is giving them. Sure. And and this is where the subjectivity comes into play. And the subjectivity means that if there's going to be rule ruling differences from room to room, which is going to advantage one team over another and therefore be demotivating and go against the mission of quizzing. Right. So, an, you know, an example here is not giving up meeting together, very short, uh, discernible pause and let us consider how we may spur and so on and so forth thereafter, right? So depending upon the length of that indeterminate pause, if it's like a quarter of a second for me to, you know, get some air in so I can keep quoting, maybe you're kind of like, okay, fine. But if I pause for two seconds, three seconds, I mean, clearly I've provided one answer, you know, and now I am going back and providing more information, right? Like I provided not giving up meeting together as my answer. I was not counted correct or incorrect yet. Therefore I went back and started quoting wrong, but really that, that was my first answer and I should be counted correct. So then the question becomes, where is, where is that hard and fast, fast objective consistently reliable line between those two scenarios? I don't think there is one, but do you think we have a problem now with Quizmasters not knowing if a pause is long enough to, um, for them to prompt for their question on a reference question, or if the pause is long enough for them to say, quote, is complete on a situation quotation? I don't think we have a problem right now because I think Quizmasters are more or less universally interpreting the rule there, I think quizmasters are solving this problem almost universally by having the concept of quoting is not providing an incorrect answer. Sure. But I, I think the more information that the, that a quizzer is giving you, the more lenient you're going to be, but that still doesn't mean it doesn't give a quizzer a free pass. It oh, doesn't. you're giving me a lot, like a long stretch of, of information from the material. That's mostly correct, but that still doesn't prevent you from giving me something that I deem to be incorrect. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. But I mean, this is where that 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 awkward pause comes in, right? The, if it's a really, really short pause, it's one thing. If it's a really long pause, it's not. Um, if it's, you know, if it's two seconds, I think most quiz masters would say no. If it's fairly short, 
but there is still a discernible pause. I think a quizmaster, uh, most quizmasters would look at that and say, well, they're just quoting, but that's not in the rule book. Um, and I don't think there is a way that we can say that they were just quoting. Um, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's definitely, I don't know the right answer here. I think, I think it's not a big deal right now, but the objectivist in me really wants there to be something objective. I understand, but I, but I think there are going to be some timing things that just aren't something that you can lock down that, that concretely. True. True. Yeah. I don't know. I just, to me, I, I, to me in this particular case, I don't like the question. Um, uh, it is, it seems a bit awkward, but I mean, it also still comes back to the notion of, you know, that's why I, I, I am totally fine with questions where, you know, you have to, uh, go backwards to provide the answer uh, that, that, that happens quite commonly. And I'm totally cool with that. And they're completely valid, but I really, really just love the interrogative word being the thing that replaces the stuff that actually has to go there because then, then there's just no way that the ambiguity is just gone you know yep i agree um so the next one um i'm titling well i don't really have a title for this all right i'm gonna make up a scenario from hebrews eleven thirty. by faith the walls of jericho fell so if i ask the question the walls of what and the quizzer jumped and said jerusalem what would you rule at that instant they are incorrect. Okay. Glad you said that. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't, well, I mean, sure. But I mean, how could you, what would be the argument to count them like not cor- incorrect yet? Um, I don't have one. I tried to pick a very proper noun so that any other proper noun is obviously incorrect, right? As opposed to like in verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. What was not worthy of them? If someone said the country or the region or even the people or mankind, it might be harder to call a quizzer definitively incorrect at that instant, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I picked something overly obvious here. So now consider an interrogative, which is, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after what? Um, after the army had marched around them for seven days. And as a quiz master, you got out the full question. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after what? And a quizzer jumps, and as many quizzers do, they kind of repeat what they have heard because it kind of gets them a running start into remembering the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And let's say the quizzer gets up there and says, by faith, the walls of Jerusalem fell. Um, w- what would you rule at that point? Would you cut them off at that point and say, I'm sorry, you've given me incorrect information? Or would you do something else? I would stay silent. I would give them the 30 seconds to to go back and correct from Jerusalem to Jericho because the they can't provide me a wrong answer but i'm not asking for jericho right i'm asking for the army had marched around them for seven days right um so the fact that they said jerusalem the fact that they messed up you know if they said walls and they said plateau right very very different you know word than walls um i wouldn't i wouldn't see either of those changes to be uh significant enough to consider their answer to be incorrect but definitely i wouldn't accept uh jerusalem as what they said even though i said jericho so this is a weird weird scenario where if they didn't repeat my question they would have actually gotten the question unarguably correct but because they repeated what i said but repeated it incorrectly they could potentially be counted incorrect if they run out of the 30 seconds and they don't correct the the, the miss 
uh, spoken word. Interesting. I have gone back and forth on this. I actually think that there are only two options for a quiz master to do, and neither of them are what you just said. <laughs> okay, go for it. I think the only two options for a quiz master are to either consider anything that a quiz master has already said as locked in correct. The quizzer both doesn't have to repeat it, um, but also cannot be c- counted incorrect for saying that part of it incorrectly. So that would be one way I think a quiz master could act. And then the other way a quiz master could act is it doesn't matter what I've gotten out already. If a quizzer chooses to repeat any of it and says any of it to the point that I consider it to be incorrect information, then they are incorrect. And the fact that I have already said it is irrelevant to how I'm um, evaluating the material that they're giving me. Yeah, and I think of those two options, I prefer the former to the latter, but Here's a question then. What happens if, you know, I say, quote, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and I say 31, like fully complete the one, and you jump and you say Hebrews eleven thirty-two, and then you quote verse 31, word perfect. Do I count you correct? So I have switched what I think, but I think you do. I think what you have said already is basically over and out of scope. Yeah, I can I could I could I could adopt that point of view. I think I would need a rule book tweak to get me there though. Sure. Um I think it's the right destination. How about this? I think it's the right destination. I don't think we can read it into the rule book that way right now, but I would be very much in favor of a rule book amendment to clear that up. I think I think that is very true, because I think the rulebook is completely silent on this scenario. It just says that the quizzer is correct when they give all the information requested, and it makes no distinction between information that the quizzer master has already said or not said yet. Yeah. Well, that was relatively painless, but and also I think um, there's no opportunity for a quizzer to game anything, because if they repeat the verse number on a quote correctly or incorrectly, like the quiz master should not be providing any feedback of any kind. Agreed. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's still incumbent on the quizzer to, like, know what verse they need to quote and then quote that verse. And so there's no way that they can kind of hunt around and see what the quiz master looks like, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. And then my last one is I had a crazy quiz jump equipment scenario. Um, and I will begin this by saying we, we had benches in PNW, and at a certain point in the year, we were having problems with one bench where seats one and four would kind of trigger the opposite light. And we were sure that we had, we were pretty sure that we had fixed it. And you never know how long you can fix something for, but it was working correctly. And I was in a quiz, and I had tested lights at the beginning of a quiz. But then during the quiz, uh, a, quizzer's, a quizzer won a jump by virtue of their light being on first. Um, and the situation seemed very curious. It wasn't a quizzer who often jumped. Um, they, out of the corner of my eye, it didn't look like they had moved. They were in seat four, and the quizzer on their team in seat one had very obviously moved. Um, and it was just a weird situation, because I didn't feel like they had jumped, but the, the light box told me that they had. Well, I made the decision in that moment to throw out that question and redo it, and I tested the lights, and they were all working. So I redid that question, um, it, and then we went forward in the quiz. And then a couple questions later, the exact same scenario happened again. And I needed to pause and figure out how I was going to handle this because I kind of realized in that instant that I don't think I can be throwing these questions out. 
And the conclusion that I came to is if we have tested the lights and they appear to be working, any other information besides the light that was triggered first should not be considered at all. Um, because I mean, we're using, otherwise you're using like human eye and judgment to know when a light got triggered and movement does not equal light trigger and especially not at that instant. And there's just too many variables. And so I decided I have to blindly sounds bad, but I have to just trust that the jump equipment is right because otherwise we're basically not using the equipment at all. And I just wondered if you had thoughts on this whole scenario. I have a couple of thoughts. So the the first thought is, I think you're completely right. I think you have to trust the equipment ultimately. Uh, I to a, to a particular point, I would amend your scenario very very slightly by saying, I might call for a second test of the equipment. Um, you know, in in whatever it was, question three or four or whatever, when it happened a second time, I might again test to see if there is a problem with the equipment. The idea being to to say like, well, we tested the equipment, it was working, maybe it's not working now. Uh, and and just to, you know, see, rule that sort of possibility out. It's a very unlikely possibility, but it's a possibility. Once you rule out that possibility, then yeah, I think you can't toss the question. I think it's it's definitely... Uh, you have to go with the equipment. So like in the moment of the actual question, you call the quizzer and I'm assuming they say like, I didn't jump. And you say, well, you have 30 seconds. And they say, I, I don't want to jump. I didn't jump. Okay. I I have to right now count that as an, uh, as an error, but let's test the equipment. And if it turns out that there's an equipment malfunction, okay, we reverse the error out. But if there isn't a, an equipment malfunction, then yeah, I think you have to go with the, you have to say like, I'm, I'm sorry, the equipment is working. That was a, that was a faulty jump. That that's an error. We have to keep going. Yeah, I agree. And it was a tough one because I really thought some funny business in the wiring was going on. But if I tested the lights every time it came up as expected, I think that's all I can do. Yeah, exactly. I think that is all you can do. All right. Well, let's jump into the worst quizzing rules as per Scott and Griffin's opinions, which are, of course, infallible and perfect and always correct. I'm joking, of course. We are almost always incorrect when it comes to opinions like this. That's also not true. We're somewhere in the middle. Um, so anyway, our opinions will probably differ from yours, but the following are various quizzing rules that are currently in the 20, the latest version of the CMA rulebook, the international rulebook, the 2018 version. And these are things that uh, Scott and I will take a certain amount of umbrage uh, with uh, umbrage is a beautiful word taking umbrage like we don't like it we we have a certain amount of dislike of of loathing uh, of, of of we are going to take umbrage with some of these rules but the the amount that we take of this umbrage uh, is going to be on a scale of one to ten where ten is like supreme like unrestricted umbrage of massive scales and one is kind of like well i guess it is technically umbrage but it's more like a niggly annoying thing and probably not that big of a deal but we're going to mention it anyway because we like talking about little niggling details on this podcast so with that all said uh scott's going to kick it off first with his first worst quizzing rule we're going to explain it we're going to go back and forth and so uh, scott's going to explain what his uh, his 
uh, worst quizzing rule is and talk a little bit about what it is and then provide his umbrage scale, the amount of umbrage, umbrage he takes regarding that rule. So Scott, kick it off. So the first one is a combination of positive and negative multiple answers and quote, if the question is not answered, end quote. So under the definition of multiple answers, it says a negative and positive answer to a question is not a valid multiple answer. And then under invalid questions, point 12, it says the question is invalid if the question is not answered. Example, if the question asks what is good and the answer states what is not good, the question is not answered and is tricky or misleading. So I, I take umbrage with this because as far as I know, only one person from one district um, doesn't like positive and negative multiple answer questions. And the reasoning was that junior quizzers in their district have difficulties understanding them. And I think that this rule book is not for junior quizzing. It defines eligibility starting at sixth grade. So that is the intent of this rule book, sixth to 12th grade. And there are, while we don't want to make anything overly difficult so as to be a gatekeeper to younger quizzers, um, there are tons of concepts and things in the rule book that are going to be easier to understand as you get older. Um, and I've never run across someone who's like, Hey, why is this a multiple answer? I don't see two answers to this. Um, so I just, I didn't think that there was any sort of a problem and this is a very specific case and I would have less umbrage with it. If all that was added to the rule book was the line under multiple answer questions saying a negative and positive answer to a question is not a valid multiple answer. But I take more umbrage because of that addition to invalid questions if the question is not answered because it gives one example. But I think that there are many ways that this can be applied that aren't very helpful and could be confusing. Like, um, you know, saying this is not good, um, this is what not good. Well, that's obviously, you know, um, a negative, quote, negative answer. But other words like unless or an if clause or neither nor, there are many other kind of phrasings in language that imply such a negative sort of thing that we're left to wonder if that is also covered by this language if the question is not answered. And I think that's quite ambiguous. I think this is also problematic because if there is a reference question, he is not what, um, a quizzer could give he is what that is valid in every other way, it's still a still a, a reference question of the right type and all this stuff, but because of this specific, if the question is not answered, we're going to count the quizzer incorrect. Um, and yeah, I just, I've never run across anyone that thought this was confusing at all. And um, until I ran across one person who thought it was very confusing to lots of junior quizzers and, and it ended up being added to the rule book. So um, I think it is not useful. But I am very curious if there are other people in other districts who have had difficulties with quizzers understanding why a positive and negative multiple answer is valid. Um, it's just not something I've, I've come across. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I really don't like the whole if the question is not answered bit because of the ambiguity of how that can be interpreted uh, for exactly the reasons that you talked about. So how much umbrage do you want to take? Maybe a seven or an eight, because I think it has complications for writing questions, and I think it is um, not anything. It's just unnecessary. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, a seven or I was going to say eight, but but maybe a seven. Something like a seven or an eight for me would be the amount of umbrage I would also take on this one as well. 
All right, so my first one here uh, is the change to the rulebook where we we're talking about pronouns. It used to be not that long ago that if you stated a pronoun in your answer, a quiz master would ask you to clarify your pronoun, but it is not the case any longer. Now the quiz master must ask you to identify the pronoun. And I am not, a, this sounds very niggly and bizarre, uh, but I, I still take umbrage with this change because clarify is actually what we're asking the quizzer to do. We are not asking the, the quizzer to identify, right? It's a subtle difference, but it is an important difference, right? To clarify means to make clear or to free from ambiguity. To identify means to verify the identity of or to serve as a means of identification for, right? So the idea being that I can identify by saying he, but I clarify by saying Scott instead of he or, or clarifying he to Scott. And I know this sounds really like, wow, Griffin is really picking at the needles or the weeds or whatever the expression is on, on this one. So I don't take a massive amount of umbrage on this one. It's more just an annoyance for me. So I guess I would call it like a three, maybe a 3.5 of umbrage, but it is so simple. It's just one word and clarify, I think is easier. It, it just makes a lot more sense to me, but I don't know, Scott, what do you think? I do agree. Um, I do really like the change that allows us, well, not allows, it requires the quiz master to, sports, to specify the pronoun required yes. um, to be clarified or, ad or identified. I think that's great because there have been many times where quizzer would need to clarify them and I would say clarify and there might be other pronouns present in the verse, maybe not in the answer, but also but other pronouns present in the verse that maybe the quizzer thinks that that's the one I'm supposed that they're supposed to clarify. And if they answer that one, even if it's correct, I really just have to assume they're attempting to clarify the one that I have on the card that I previously was not able to specify to them. And I would count them incorrect in that situation, which I always hated doing because I didn't know which pronoun they were attempting to clarify. And so now um, that it's I am able to tell them exactly which one or sometimes more than one, um, I think is awesome. But identify is not the word that we want here. I do think that everyone knows that that's what they're being asked. But in the same vein, one exercise I would love to do, um, and this is not my idea, it's someone else's idea, but is give the rule book to someone who knows nothing about quizzing and have them put on a quiz meet and see the kinds of ridiculousness, I mean, and I'm saying ridiculousness as perceived by us, that they come up with because they don't have all of this tribal and contextual knowledge that we do of how quizzing is supposed to work because we're in it. Um, and so me saying that whether you say identify, clarify, or any other random word you use, well, a quizzer is probably going to know like, oh, they gave me a pronoun. I should, I need to give that the specifics of that pronoun. But clarify, I think is the best word. But my umbrage would be low. I'm happy about being required as a quiz master to give the specific pronoun that I need clarified. Yeah, me too. I, I very much think that that, I think that may have, that may have been added when the identify word happened. And I certainly wouldn't want that to be reversed. I think that's a very, very good rule to have. I just want to change identify back to clarify. I think it, it makes a whole lot more sense. Um, but again, yeah, I call it a three. What, 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 what level of umbrage would you take? Mm, probably similar. Okay. Because it would also be like, 
it's literally a one word change and would be easy to adopt and clearer. So it's like, I don't, and I also don't know if anyone would argue over it. <laughs> yeah, true. True. So my next one is 50, 50 reference questions. And, um, an example of that is take a phrase, good man from a verse. It could be that good what and what man are both valid single answer chapter verse reference questions. And a quizzer who quotes backwards can quote, 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 um, not be prompted and then say good man. A quiz master prompts them for their question. And at that point, they don't know if it's good what or what man. And previously, um, the rule book was ambiguous about these sorts of questions, but it seemed like most districts would accept either um, for and within PNW we accepted either because we said it's the same question type, um, single answer, chapter verse reference, and the sum of the information in the question and answer of each is the same. So good what, good man, what man, good man. So the phrase good man is the total sum of required information in both. If the verse was like he is a good man, um, and you needed he is what, and a quizzer said he is a good man prompted for the question and says, good what or what man, they wouldn't be counted correct because they're missing that he is part. So their provided question did not have the same total information. Um, and I know of another district that did almost the same thing, but they basically, they, they required the quizzer to get to the exact correct question. But it, let's say the question that they needed was what man. If a quizzer said good what, they were not considered to be incorrect at that point. Um, they just needed, they, they had more chances to get to what man and ultimately needed to get there, which is a slightly different implementation than what PNW did, but it had the same end result. Well, um, and I, I thought that was great. Well, there are some, and it's not just one person. It's, I, I, I can't say if what percentage of, of people involved with quizzing, but it's a good number. Um, think that these sorts of scenarios should be treated like any other question type where if you jump before the complete question is read, you may be accepting risk um, as to knowing exactly what, what you need to say to be counted correct. Um, good examples are on a quote question. If you jump before the complete verse number is read, you might have to guess from a span of verses. If you jump on one word on a finish the verse, there might be eight verses that you have to guess between. And you don't get a chance to guess all of them, right? You have to pick one. And the one that you pick first is the one you're stuck with. And I think that that is a completely valid viewpoint to have um, because sure jumping before the end of the question on a reference question you're absolutely accepting some risk but the way that I view it is we want to create incentives for people to memorize as much material as they can and to me um, being able to answer reference questions is requires the ultimate amount of material knowledge because you have to know at the very least whole chapters um, and then you're limited to just those chapters to jump on but a lot of reference quizzers know the entire material, and you also have to know the references. You can be a Finnish, Finnish quizzer and not know references. Um, if you're a quote quizzer, you do have to know references, but within districts, you might have to know a limited subset of verses. But if you're going to jump on reference questions, you will have to know a lot of material, and you have to know it with the reference. And in a scenario where a quizzer has done that work, jumps on a reference, quotes backwards to isolate um, a phrase, and then has to pick between the two, I want to count them correct in that situation. 
Um, I want a mechanism to do that because I think not doing that creates a slight disincentive to working hard on reference questions. And I don't want to create any disincentives to working hard on reference questions because I think it requires a lot of hard work and it's work that we want to encourage. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, really, honestly, I agree with all of that. I think it's completely reasonable to be in favor of the 50-50 rule as it currently stands, but I think it is an improvement to not have it. So given the current way the rule is written, what amount of umbrage do you wish to take? Um, Thinking purely of the part of the rulebook that mentions 50-50 reference questions, maybe a five, something in the middle, because I think it's consistent with the rest of the questions and it's written in a way that doesn't like force us to implement it wide more widely than just 50 50 reference questions um so it would be a a very medium level of umbrage okay i think i would call it a four i mean I, i i suppose i could be convinced of a five i think to me the fact that i can hear and understand and acknowledge as you know, valid, the argument in favor of it sort of drops the level of umbrage in, in my, in my mind. So like for me, I'd call it like a, maybe even a three, but I could go as high as a four, uh, on the, on the umbrage. Um, cause I think, I think it does, it does act as a disincentive. So maybe, maybe I would go up to a five. So I'm kind of comparing it to my three with the whole clarify versus identify, um, with something like clarify, identify. I don't think it, like, like you said, I don't think it confuses anybody. I think it's really just me being kind of OCD about certain, what certain words mean. Whereas this, I could see it being annoying to a quizzer. I want to encourage more quizzers to go after reference questions. So yeah, four, four and a half, five. That makes sense to me. All right, so I'm I'm going to go back to being the niggly uh, grammar matters guy. Um, you know, I was caring about identify and clarify. So in the rule book right now, we're going to stick on reference questions for a little bit because we were talking about the 50-50 reference questions. So uh, in the rule book right now, a question that is both a reference question and a multiple answer question is listed as a CV... R-M-A or C-R-M-A for either a chapter only or chapter verse reference multiple answer. Uh, however, that what that is a change. Uh, if you go, if you get into the time machine and you go to the way back time, uh, where way back time was not that long ago, maybe only one and a half eons ago, it was in fact actually a a multiple answer chapter verse reference questions or M-A-C-V-R or M-A-C-R. And of course, uh, if you look in the rule book right now, it has the CVR listed first. And if you look in CBQZ, it has the MA first because I quoted, or sorry, not quoted, I created CBQZ and I am very old school. So I did it the way it used to be. But in thinking about this, this difference, the reason I am going to take some umbrage with the C, uh, with the reference part coming prior to the multiple answer is that in English, the modifier comes before the noun and multiple answer chapter verse reference questions are, uh, according to Scott, and I agree with Scott, they are structurally reference questions more than they are. I mean, they are both a reference question and a multiple answer question. Absolutely. But they are structurally reference questions that have as their answer a multiple answer, right? So they are fundamentally a reference question. And in English, the modifier comes before the noun. The 
noun in this case being reference or R, and then the fact that it's a chapter verse reference versus a chapter reference, we put the CV or the C in front of the R. Uh, we don't say, you know, reference chapter verse or reference chapter only. We say CVR or CR. So similarly, the MA needs to come in front of the R to be consistent with the CVR or CR. So MACVR or MA. CR. Again, this is kind of a niggly thing. Um, so I will take maybe a three level of umbrage on this one. But again, it's a very, it's very similar to like the clarify identify thing, right? Nobody's confused by it. It's pretty clear either way. Uh, in the rule book, there's even a CVR slash MA uh, in a couple of, or CR slash MA, uh, which are a little annoying. Um, I would definitely remove the slash and have it be consistent. But uh, yeah, for me, I'll um, I'll give it a three. But Scott, what do you think? Um, sorry, typing a note. Um, my average level is going to be if you wanted to call them multiple answer chapter verse reference questions. Actually, my 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 average level is going to be higher, maybe even a six. And I'll Whoa, tell you why. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't like that you brought up that in English the modifier comes before the noun because it it very strongly supports your side of things here, and I <laughs> I, I, ha, I have no ability to refute that. You know we don't we don't call you um, um, a man good, right? We call you a good man. But there are two key reasons that I that I think that it should be called a chapter verse reference multiple answer. The first one is that. If I have any kind of database or spreadsheet or a listing of verses in a question of questions in a question set, and I want to sort them alphabetically by the question type, I want CVRMAs to appear right next to CVRs and not right next to multiple answer non-reference questions. So that's my first reasoning. Um, that and then my sounds second, like a that sounds like a technology request, not a rulebook change. Sure. I mean, if but if you want to visually have them say MACVR, but you can ensure that in Excel and Google Sheets and Airtable and every spreadsheet that might be invented down the road, they can be sorted next to each other, um, next to CVRs, then I'm fine with it. But I think if alphabetically they're different, they're just going to be put in different spots. Um, but the second one is, as a quizzer, when the question type is announced it sparks information in your brain uh, to tell you what to do. And if the first thing that you hear is multiple answer, you start thinking that it's a multiple answer non-reference question. And you have to wait for the whole thing to know that it's actually a reference question. And if you're a CVR quizzer, you want that to be first because it is reference quizzers who jump on CVRMAs. It is not multiple answer specialists. Sure, I agree. But again, then... Why don't we switch to the French way of doing it universally? So then let's call it, you know, using your argument uh, of reference, then it should be reference chapter verse multiple answer. Like the R should be the first thing that gets uh, heard. Oh, the only reason I wouldn't do that is is tradition. But it's not because I need to be inconsistent about it. Sure. Fair enough. But if, if it's tradition that we're caring about, then multiple answer CVR is the way to go. Um, we would be reverting to older tradition. That is true. Then, then newer, better tradition. No, not better, not better. Cons we were, we would be reverting to a tradition that is consistent. Um, I would also be okay with going reference chapter verse multiple answer. I think it's a little 
you know, kind of convoluted that way because it's kind of not the way people talk about it. But I would be completely, I would be more okay with reference chapter verse multiple answer than I would be with chapter verse reference multiple answer. Just because sure. it, it breaks, it breaks up the modifiers. Yep. And I read, readily acknowledge that between CRs and CVRs, you have to wait for more than the word chapter before you know actually what type it is. And those, those quizzers, um, you know, the type of quizzers that are jumping on CRs versus CBRs are often different, you know? Yeah. So, um, but I'm reminded of a, a very good quiz master in PNW who did something that I just like, I had a big pet peeve about, but when they would announce, um, a finish the verse question, they always called it a finish this verse. And to me, because a finish this is a specific question, I made sure to never say finish this verse for either um, risk that a quizzer mishears me, or which is my biggest worry, or my second very small worry of slightly misleading a quizzer for a split second when they hear finish this and then hear the verse and are like, oh, it's not a finish this. Um, and I, I just... You know, I wanted to be so specific on how I introduced the question type because it is seconds between when you introduce it to when you start reading it. And quizzers are often doing mental calculations and preparations based on the question type. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would take I would go a step further and say there is no finish this verse question type in the rule book. There is a finish the verse and there is a finish this, but there is not a finish this verse question type in the rule book presently. There is not, but I, like I didn't, that's not why I take umbrage with a quiz master announcing it as a finish this verse. It's because there's another type that is so similarly named, you know, because we call interrogative questions all manner of things that are not mentioned in the rule book, but nobody bats an eye. Right. And, you know, same with quote these two verses. Some people just say quote these two or... Some people do say, quote, this verse and the next, which I don't like, um, but not necessarily because the rulebook doesn't say it. I just don't like it because I think it's less clear and less expected. Yeah, yeah. All right, the next one I have is the quizzer may not continue into or change to another verse, but specifically the continue into. So I think this is very new to the rulebook within the last six months or something. I did not even know it was in the rulebook. I thought it was just introduced for Internationals 2019, but it is written into the rulebook. Um, and so the, the scenario is a quizzer is answering a finish the verse or a quote question. They quote it word perfectly, but without pausing, continue into the next verse. And I don't like it for a couple reasons. Um, one small reason is the objectivity around if they paused or not. Um, that is subjective. Sorry, I said objectivity. I meant the subjectivity. That is a subjective thing, but it is it is subjective as it relates to um, being prompted for a ref for your question on a reference question and quote is complete on a situation quotation. Um, you know, we don't define how long of a pause is long enough, and I think most of the time it's completely fine. Um, and I think that, that that is the case here. But to me, if a quizzer is correct before becoming incorrect by going into a different verse, which would take them out of context, I don't know why we're stressing that quizzers know the end of a verse. I think there are definitely places where we stress that they know context um, and have to stay in a one-verse context on CVRs and finished questions and quote questions. But to me, the penalty here is you have to be word perfect the first time through before you go into that next verse. It just seems weird that we're going to 
um, have them go through the verse and be word perfect, but also want them to know where where the end of the verse is. Um, I don't think it's necessary, and this is a scenario where I want to count the quizzer correct. Yeah. How much umbrage do you take on it? Um, I don't know, because like I do want quizzers to know where the end of the verse is, um, but I mean, maybe a six. Yeah. So I, I don't like this rule because of the subjectivity of the pause, right? Um, if a quizzer is answering a verse like this and then goes into the next verse, like at, and then some other quizzer is talking very quickly and then goes into another verse, right? Or is, you know, the like, like there's, there's a certain level of like, well, were they just talking really slow and then moving into the next verse or were they just talking really fast and had a pause and then moved into the next verse, even though those pauses are exactly the same. I, I don't like the, the just massive level of ambiguity there. And I don't see any downside in immediately counting them correct. Like, because it does nothing for the quizzer to be, it doesn't, there is no advantage to the quizzer by not stopping at the end of the verse, right? You're either correct or you're not correct enough. And now that you've gone out of the verse, you're now incorrect versus having an opportunity to be prompted to say again. Um, I just, I, I see no good that comes from this and only uh, bad. So yeah, for me, I would also take like about a six on the umbrage scale with this one. I In practice, I don't think it's going to be an issue because I don't think any quiz master is going to be like trying to count a quizzer wrong because they did not pause for a length up to that quizmaster standards. I think the only scenarios where this is going to be invoked is when a quizzer just barges ahead with no pause of any kind, right? Yeah. Um, which you could argue is the exact situation that we don't want. But to me, they're correct before they're incorrect. And if they quoted the first word perfect, I want to count them correct, even if they have no idea where the verse break is. To me, that's irrelevant for this question type. Sure, but I would, I would, I, I agree with what you're saying. But I would counter that by saying, um, what? How, how do you deal with a challenge? Let's say a quizzer is quoting a verse like this and continues into the next verse. And you end up counting them correct because, well, they paused, right? There was a pause and you're like, well, it's a sufficient enough pause. You count them correct. Uh, and there's a challenge that says, no, hang on. They really didn't pause enough to, you know, truly signify that they thought that they were at the end of the verse. How do you handle that challenge? Right. I mean, ultimately it comes down to a quiz master's discretion. And, you know, obviously you and I would both be comfortable saying, no, it's, it's fine. But that just starts to get this into this huge gray area of like, how do you respond to an eloquent, reasonable challenge that quotes the rule book in that in that scenario? I mean, I see what you're saying, but I actually and I I definitely don't like I'm very sensitive to situations where you are subject subjectively potentially setting precedent. Um, but I don't think there is an implementation problem surrounding um, pauses by the quizzer. I, and I think I don't, there could I, be, though, right? I think I think this is the sort of thing. If in a universe where you have a subjective 
situation versus an objective situation and the subjective information or subjective situation can cause you to to have ambiguity or disillusionment or you know any kind of problems to the mission of quizzing then absolutely sure that's an obvious thing go to the objective right but because because anything that 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 goes to the mission trumps everything else right but in a world where the object an objective policy does not suffer in any way from the subjective policy isn't the objective policy always superior? I mean, I don't. You phrase it in such a way, Griffin. I know. Um, I'm just. I'm. I'm twisting the knife because you know. And this is the thing. At the end of the day, we both agree on this one. But it's just like I'm trying to find where that line is. Yeah. I mean, in this, I think it's not a necessary rule. But um, you know, in baseball, the rule where a tie goes to the runner for a force out. I think that's kind of how I view anything that's subjective in quizzing is if I'm just torn on whether a quizzer gave me enough information to be counted incorrect, or if I'm just like torn, and I'm talking torn, like 50-50 either way, whether they gave me enough information to take them out of context, I will always give that tie in deference to the quizzer and then hear a challenge, right? So I'll count the quizzer incorrect. I'll count the quizzer not going out of context. If I'm like, oh, did they pause enough or not? If I'm even kind of asking the question, I would say like, I think they did pause enough. And and then I would be open to a challenge, right? Because it's obviously a subjective gray area. Um, but I just, I don't see a problem in implementation. I don't see quizzer, quiz masters that take advantage of the subjectivity to go gung-ho in a like um, harmful manner. Yeah. Well, and on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up here. We have a significantly long list of additional, uh, probably even more interesting uh, rules that we want to take umbrage with. So we're going to have to save those for a future episode. Uh, but I want to remind everybody that if you are taking umbrage with any of our taking of umbrage, or if you have different umbrage that you would like to take, or if you just want to email us and say the word umbrage, um, because it's a really cool word, please do so. Um, you can email us at iq at cbqz.org, and you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you are on Slack, you can join us in near real-time and sometimes truly real-time conversation on the Pound Inside Dash Quizzing channel on the Bible Quizzing Slack forum. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening, and thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a have fun listening. <laughs> <laughs>